Uh, beloved, in the year 490 B.C., there was a great battle on a plain in northeast Attica. Uh, the Greek army came up, a far more numerous Persian army, and a great battle, great war ensued. Uh, many of the Greeks lost their life, but as it turned out, providentially, the fewer-numbered Greeks won the battle. And the Greek army took their uh, fastest runner, Phaedipides, uh, which, by the way, there's another name maybe for your next son, Phaedipides Lupinetti. <laughs> I thought of that just a minute ago, but that's on the side. Phaedipides uh, ran, and they sent him the fastest runner with the news of the great victory back to the city of Athens. So he ran back, and he entered into the city gates, and he shouted out to the city leaders and to the people, Rejoice, for we have won the war. Then, as the historical story, the legend goes his heart burst and he died on the spot sad ending but a great news of victory Phaedipides ran his private race it was a one-man race and he ran it with endurance some 26.2 miles from the marathon plain in northeast Attica back to the city of Athens from the battle at Marathon beloved please take your Bibles and open to Hebrews chapter 11 there are many metaphors in Scripture to describe the church and to describe even Christian life. Uh, the church is the body, the temple. It's a building. It's a house. It's the family of God. A metaphor around Christian life and Christian activity, there's farming metaphors. There's a metaphor of a war, a holy war. Even as we are engaged, we know from Ephesians, and there are athletic imagery as well, wrestling and a race. And the passage we have before us here this morning uses that athletic imagery of a great race. It's not a sprint. It is a lifelong marathon in Christ. My beloved, follow as I begin in Hebrews chapter 11, and we will read through Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, which is the passage that God has before us here this morning. This is the word of God, Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now what we have here as we close out chapter 11 and we open up chapter 12, we have the great summation. We have the summation of this incredible picture gallery, this incredible hall of faith, this encomium of spiritual godly men and women, of praise given to them, of pointing us 
to them by way of example. It's the summation of that in the first, excuse me, the last two verses of chapter 11. And then the author moves to the great exhortation built upon this magnificent foundation that he's laid out through the entire chapter 11. And I love it even as we were so blessed yesterday with our men's big breakfast, uh, with Mike's excellent message and the magnificent testimony of Barry, what a joy and blessing that was. He, for you, you men that were there, he gave us a great uh, introduction into our message this morning, talking about finishing well, running with endurance. But even as we read those words in the first few verses of chapter 12, we need to go back and remind ourselves that chapter 11 was this giant illustration upon illustration upon illustration testimony upon testimony upon testimony inserted in between the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 36 through 39. The author there said, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So to be sure, Hebrews chapter 11, the beautiful center jewel of doctrine throughout is faith, faith, faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, faith all the way through. And at the same time, kind of the sub-stone below that center stone jewel is endurance. He closes out chapter 10, the author closes out chapter 10, saying, we are not the kind of people who quit in the middle of the race. Then he piles that portrait galley on top of that before taking us to this exhortation we have at the beginning of verse 12. Beloved, it is for those who press on. Those who press on preserve their souls. This is the endurance of the faithful. And the intent here is as you run the race of your life, as you run the race for your life, that every one of us may finish the race well, that we may finish the race with joy. Even the kind of joy our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had on his heart, even as he endured and faced the cross. So let's look at the summation of the great section of Scripture, the great section of Hebrews. What we have here in our English Bibles is chapter 11, this great summation at the beginning of verse 39 in Hebrews 11. The words are, and all these. So the author is going all the way back to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the nation of Israel that passed through the waters, the nation of Israel that circled around Jericho, and Rahab the harlot, and then Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, all the prophets, and then all the unnamed men and women with great triumphs of faith and great tribulation of faith that we have all, all these people, the entire list, having gained approval through their faith. The author takes us back also to where he began in verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 11. Look back there, verses 1 and 2. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Now look at verse 2. For by it the men of old gained approval. The men of old and the women of old, the fathers and the mothers, the single men, the single women of old in the faith, they gained approval. The gained approval, martyreo, they gained God's witness. God witnessed on their behalf. Literally, they obtained a testimony, not testimony from men and women, even testimony of other godly men and women, but testimony from God himself about the nature, how he was well pleased with what these men and women did. So as the author finishes what we have as chapter 11, this hall of faith picture gallery, this catalog of spiritual greatness, we understand that as we go through here, Abel, Enoch, these aren't, this isn't a Christian version of baseball cards. Okay? We aren't here to just kind of admire them and trade them and, you know, oh, isn't that wonderful? God lays us out for a specific purpose. We looked at this great cloud of witnesses week by week, and we learned from them in this great discourse on faith and endurance and endurance. All of these gained approval. They gained the witness through the witness of God through their faith. And even though, continuing in verse 39, even though they did not receive what was promised. You see, these living illustrations, these men and women of faith and endurance, for them the pull of the unseen was evident by their lives, by their faith, by their belief, by their active faith. This great cloud of Old Testament witness were promised believers. They heard the word of God. They agreed with the word of God. They believed the word of God and they put their trust in the word of God even though in their lifetime they didn't receive what was promised at that point in time. They heard the story, they trusted the promise and they lived their lives. Their faith brought their witness, brought God's testimony and their testimony to us but it did not bring the realization of it. But with their eyes of faith, even the unseen things became seen with their eyes of faith. For example, verse 13, similar words, all these, verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they believed the promises. They welcomed them from a distance. They believed the promises. They kept on believing the promises, and they died believing the promises. They ran the race with endurance. They ran through the tape. They didn't collapse before the post. And it is because, back in our text, because, verse 40, God had provided something better for us. You see, they weren't concerned with the verdict of the world, they were concerned with the verdict of God. And because God is providing something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made complete. What is this saying here? What this is saying is this is describing the beautifully glorious unity and continuity of the people of God. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, young and old, slave and free. More to the point here, the specific context here is old covenant believers who are saved by faith alone in believing the word of God and new covenant believers. And that's you and me, Jew and Gentile, here in the new covenant together in one body. 
This is similar to a beautiful illustration. In Revelation chapter 6, John, while he's on the island of, on the Isle of Patmos, in Revelation chapter 6, describes tribulation saints, tribulation martyrs. Verse 11, we read these words. Revelation 6, 11, there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Same kind of dynamic. Beloved, again, the glorious unity of the saved people, the people of God, the body of Christ, and the glorious continuity is what is at work here. And we can think about the examples that we've gone through. Abel, Abel's been in heaven not saying that we would mark time in heaven the same way we mark time here, but Abel's been in heaven around 6,000 years. Enoch's been in heaven some 5,500 years. Rahab, the last singular example of by faith, Rahab's been in heaven for some 3,500 years. So what is it that they're waiting at this point? Well, they're in heaven, but even as we read in Revelation 6, 11, even as we understand the author here in Hebrews describing the perfect Sabbath rest that we have in Christ, Ahab, or excuse me, Abel, Enoch, Rahab, their spirits rest in perfect fulfillment in heaven now. While they wait for the physical resurrection of their bodies. While they wait for the renewal of all creation. The creation that's groaning under the burden of sin like Romans chapter 8. While they wait uh, for the swallowing up of what's mortal by eternal life that we read in 2 Corinthians. They await the unveiling of the new heavens and the new earth. While Again, they rest in perfect fulfillment. So even as we are singing the beautiful songs where I think it said something, we're saved to the uttermost. We, that's, that's an already and not yet. You and I are indeed what we sang. We are saved to the uttermost. That's the already part of what we enjoy in Christ. And there's a not yet portion as well for you and for me and for Abel and Rahab and Moses and all the rest of them. They await as we do the consummation of all things in Christ. And are you ready for this? God is postponing, in a sense, from a certain angle, according on the strength of this text, God is postponing the consummation of the universe in order for you to finish the race. In order for me to finish the race. Beloved, one day soon, maybe very soon, we'll be united with all the saints from whom their labors rest. The saints that we read of here and the saints that may be near and dear in our hearts who are with the Lord even now, not with us. That's the great summation that he gives us in the last two verses of chapter 11. Now, let's look at the great exhortation that springs, jumps out. Chains fell off, I rose. That's, sorry, that's on my brain now. Can't completely get it out, which is okay, I suppose. The great exhortation following, again, all the way back to what we read in chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. There's one exhortation, and the way I'm breaking it out here, there's two powerful motivations. 
powerful motivations in this race of life. He says at the beginning of, actually, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go to the beginning. Let me go to the middle for a moment. Let me put on my Hebrew hat here. Let me put on my Oriental hat instead of my Occidental hat. Go to the middle of the verse and go to the central verb where he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the central verb. Everything else in verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 12 either explains this race or motivates this race. And the question is, going back to what we read at the, be- at the end of verse 10, is are we going to press on or are we going to shrink back? Are you going to press on to eternal life? Or, dear friend, are you going to shrink back to destruction? And as I mentioned, the author finished chapter 10, this author, pastor, preacher who loved the audience to whom he was writing. He had hope. And he says, we're not the kind of people who quit in the middle of the race. But he has the word of warning, as we've seen throughout the letter, for those who would be tempted and run the eternal peril and risk of shrinking back to destruction and quitting in the middle of the race. And even the word race, it's the Greek word agon. We get the English word agony from it. Uh, it's, a, it's used to describe a fight, a race. In Philippians 1, verse 30, it's translated as conflict. In Colossians 2, 1, struggle. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, opposition. I mean, this describes life. We cry at the beginning of life, and we sigh at the end of life, and everything is a struggle in between. That's why Paul, for example, encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, with this word. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Agonizomai, the good agon. Fight the good fight. Same word translated as race in Hebrew. So the picture here is run the race with endurance, but it's not just a, it's, I mean, a marathon's difficult enough, but it's a marathon and it's a battle. It's a war, even as we are engaging in it. He says to do it with endurance, with steadfast loyalty and fidelity to the purpose, with an unswerving faith, even through trials and sufferings. Uh, Paul, in Romans 5, 3, said, we, you and I, in Christ, we exult in our tribulations, knowing tribulation brings about perseverance, brings about endurance. It's the same word, endurance, perseverance. That, beloved, saving faith produces endurance. And by the way, endurance is produced by faith, not the other way around. You don't muscle your way through endurance to produce faith. Faith produces endurance. To be sure, endurance and hoisting up our girdles and, sorry, I'm confusing English language and and scripture. I think you get the main point. Uh, Beloved, as, as we engage in this race, we prepare for this battle. That does strengthen our faith, but endurance comes from faith, not the other way around. And that's why, for example, Paul, in 2 Timothy 2.12, he says to Timothy, if we endure, we will reign with him. And what he's describing there again is one, if one truly has saving faith, he or she will endure and we will reign together with Christ. 
And beloved, even as we think about this, we should understand that in Scripture, certainly not here in Hebrews, anywhere in Hebrews, Hebrews 11 at the end, 12 here, Christianity is not pictured as a pleasant evening stroll. It's not something you try on to give you maybe a little bit of a better life. It's a battle. It's a war. Genuine faith also, genuine faith under duress is purified and proven. False faith under duress falters and fails. False faith may look good at the human level, but it never lasts. Only good soil produces lasting fruit. It's not killed by the noonday heat of affliction. It's the picture Christ gave earlier. And by the way, coming back to this athletic imagery, and I love this part of the author of Hebrews. Paul liked athletic imagery and wartime imagery as well. We understand in the real life, in the real life athletic world, you have a choice. You can be a watcher or you can be a doer. But the kind of picture that we're getting here, it's not the same. It's not like the dynamic that sports stadiums are filled with spectators in desperate need of exercise, watching players in desperate need of rest. No, beloved, in the Christian life, there is no option. There is no choice. You are in the race. The starting pistol has fired. From the moment of your salvation until the moment of your death, the moment of your passing away, your, the moment of your going home to be with the Lord, the unto the moment of your leaving the land of the dying and enter into the land of the living. From moment of birth to death, you're running the race. That's why Paul also said to Timothy, also in 2 Timothy, where he was awaiting execution at the hands of the Roman executioners, he said, I fought the good fight. I've agonizomide, the good agon. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Apostle Paul did that. And Apostle Paul there to Timothy, all the heroes and heroines of Hebrews chapter 11 endured in the faith. Some were martyred. Some died natural causes, but they all finished the course. They all fought the fight. Turn for a moment over to 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 26. By way of application, we'll take words from the Apostle Paul to the church, the immature church in Corinth. In verses 24 through, actually I'll go through 27. Similar type language, and there's a great application for us from Paul. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, Paul says, Don't you know, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Here's the application. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercise of self-control in all things, discipline in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it to receive an imperishable wreath. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Beloved, again, from Paul, more to the point, Hebrews author here, chapter 12, beloved, run through the tape. Don't collapse until you pass 
the post. That's the great exhortation the author gives to us in the middle of verse 1. But he also gives us motivation. He tells us why we should do it, and he tells us how to do it. He tells us how to do it. And we begin in verse 1, at the beginning of verse 1, chapter 12, we see the word, therefore, therefore. So that right there tells us that this goes all the way back to everything he said back in chapter 11, all the way back to where he left us off at the end of chapter 10. And it's interesting, the Greek word translated therefore here isn't the normal Greek word that repeatedly appears throughout the New Testament. This word only appears twice in the New Testament here and in 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. There's a tremendous emphasis and strength and intensity of this here. Therefore, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us is what the author said. And notice here this loving author preacher pastor again associates himself with the audience we us 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 four times here in verse one we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us and this is the beginning of this athletic imagery that we have even before we come to the words of run the race he's giving a picture of a greek arena of a mighty greek stadium filled with a great cloud a massive body in this case of old testament saints what he's saying is they finished the race and they've come back to the stadium metaphorically speaking to martyreo to witness to witness and we can ask the question What kind of witnessing is this great cloud of old covenant, godly, promise-believing men and women doing? Are they spectators or are they testifiers? And the answer is this is not a stadium filled with spectators. Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Sarah aren't watching you. They're not watching me preach. They are testifying though to you they are testifying to me by faith verse 4 by faith hebrews 11:4 sorry chapter 11 verse 4 by way of example by faith abel offered to god a better sacrifice than cain through it he obtained the testimony that he was righteous god testifying about his gifts gifts and the end of 11:4 through faith though he is dead he still speaks That's the great cloud of witnesses. They are testifying. Moses is testifying to you and to me. I chose ill treatment with the people of God rather than the treasures of Egypt. These godly ancient men and women of God are holding up their wounds saying, I finished the race. I did it and you can do it too is the point. The author is bringing out here in Christ, not through our own strength, not through our own muscle, not through even through our own spiritual disciplines, but through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the answering the question of why we should do that. But he says, therefore, it ties back. This is why he gives the exhortation, run the race with endurance and then he gives a second motivation he describes how we are to do this thing and beloved understand this we won't finish the course if we don't listen to our coach's counsel 
And we can ask the question, how are we to run this race, race with endurance? He gives us the exhortation. He gives us the command. And that would be sufficient. But because God is gracious and merciful, he gives us clarity. And he basically says, discard your weight and fix your eyes. And discard your weight. Lay aside. Basically, he says, once you start the race, you're running from the things that you've laid aside. And what he commands us to do here is to lay aside the stuff that hinders us and the sin that entangles us. He says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every burden, every weight. ESV translates it as weight. This is, uh, technically speaking, the stuff that slows us down in our Christian race. This includes the innocent things, the allowable things, and the good things. He's not saying lay aside every innocent thing, every allowable thing, and every good thing, but if it begins to slow you down in your race, lay it aside. Lay it aside. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, is what the author is saying here. This also flows from the dynamic that we could understand just in general practical life, but more importantly in Christian life, that the good and even the better sometimes, the good and the better can sometimes even become the enemy of the best because some things matter more than other things and there's not time to do everything. That's why there are times when we must have even to innocent allowable good things there must be a necessary no because we are more concerned with an emphatic yes. And it's also things at good things and necessary things at the right time. We can think, for example, in Ephesians 6.15, the Apostle Paul in the armor of God describes that we shod our feet. We put on shoes with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shoes of readiness. These were these thick, hard leather studded on the bottom hobnail boots that the Roman soldiers would take into battle that would go up almost to the bottom of their knee. And those were great footwear for fighting in a war. It would help them keep their grip. But no Roman soldier, no athlete would even think about wearing those in a foot race, in a sprint or in a race of endurance. There's a time and a place. We can think of things that are even praiseworthy. Remember, we had uh, Shannon Hurley who blessed us here when he came and visited from Uganda. He was talking about godly Martha. Godly Martha who had even a good understanding of the hope of the resurrection. And she had a noble praiseworthy goal to minister and to take care of Jesus and to prepare the meal well. But that was a distraction from the greater, from the best. The good in that case was the enemy of the best. So back here, when he says, lay aside every encumbrance, beloved, what God is saying to you is, he's saying, don't, when you, when you come to decisions in life, even when you come to deci ministry decisions, uh, family decisions, don't just ask what's wrong with this, ask what's good with it. Does this good, allowable thing get in the way? Or does it help me run? Does it weigh me down, or is it like wind beneath my wings? And beloved, it doesn't take much to bring a person down. It can be an untied shoelace. It can be a preoccupation with pleasure. It can be a fascination with 
entertainment, laziness, the list can go on and on. May we be, we want to be, beloved, fleet-footed in the race of righteousness. That's the picture God has given to you and to me. Lay aside the stuff that hinders and lay aside the sin that entangles. This gets to be a little more obvious at the end of verse 1. And the sin, lay aside also the sin which so easily entangles us, that is surrounding us, that is besetting us, is controlling us tightly. Uh, The ESV translates this as the sin which clings so closely. New King James, the sin which so easily ensnares. Or King James Version, this is the besetting sin. So those of you that were familiar with that last song we sing, you might be familiar with the besetting sin. You see, for the believer, for you and for me, sin no longer reigns in our life. We are no longer slaves to our will. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to Christ. But it does remain. Sin doesn't reign, but it does remain. And one of the most horrifying truths about sin is that it clings. It's sticky. It's encompassing, surrounding, entangling is the language that he uses here. J.C. Ryle said, sins begin like cobwebs and they become like iron clamps. Sins' promises are lies. Its fruit is bitter and its end is destruction. Also, very often the pathway to apostasy very often begins at the doorway of immorality. The pathway to apostasy, the pathway to shrinking back to destruction begins at the doorway of of immorality. And sobering, another sobering truth is, in a certain sense, we remember Joseph who, fl- who fleed. He fled from the temptation of Potiphar's wife. And so we understand that we should run from sin, but there is a certain sense in which we can't run from sin because it goes everywhere with us because we are trapped in this body of death. Therefore, we must fight. We must wage War. We must gird up our loins. That was the expression I was looking for earlier. And be a man, or be a woman, as the case may be. So we are to discard, you are to discard your weight, and you are to fix your eyes. And he saves the greatest motivation the second he goes from the lesser motivation of the Old Testament cloud of witnesses to the infinitely greater motivation fix your eyes on Jesus. You can tell a man of God, a woman of God, by what he flees from, what he fights for, what he follows after. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the language, the word here means it doesn't, it's not just fixing your eyes on something. It's turning your eyes away from everything else and fixing and focusing on this one thing. In this case, Jesus. And he uses the human name Jesus to emphasize his humanity, to emphasize he is the example par excellence. He is the superior, infinite, perfect example, even in his humanity. Also, we don't, we are blessed as we have studied and gone through Hebrews chapter 11, all these men and women of faith, but we don't fix our eyes on Abel. We don't fix our eyes on Enoch. We don't fix our eyes on Sarah. We fix our eyes on the one whom Abel and Enoch fix their eyes upon. They fix their eyes upon God. They fix their eyes upon the salvation that God promised in the Old Testament that was brought by the man, 
Jesus Christ. Beloved, listen to Jesus and learn. Look to Jesus and live. And when you fix your eyes on him, you don't see a man. You see the man, the representative man who leads you into eternal glory and eternal rest. Even the rest that we discussed before. And Jesus is, we continue, the author and perfecter of faith. He's the cornerstone and the capstone of our faith. He's the beginning of our faith and the end of our faith. He's the alpha and the omega. He's our unshakable ground, the firm foundation upon which we believe the promise. And we endure to the end Believing the things that are unseen even to us as we, in a sense, see them with our eyes of faith. He's the author, the pathfinder, the leader, the pioneer, the captain, the prince. Rich word that's translated here <coughs> Excuse me, as author. He blazed the trail and he completed the course. He led the way into heaven as your forerunner. And as we've seen elsewhere earlier in Hebrews, he intercedes now as your high priest. He's the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. This is the only appearance of this teleos word in noun form in the New Testament, the perfecter. Uh, This is the same type of theology, the same type of thinking Uh, The Apostle Paul had, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the verb form of this noun perfecter. He will perfect it, and he is the perfecter. And in somewhat of the same way that Jesus Christ on the cross, when he said, it is finished, the work that, he, that God had for him to do on earth before his death was done, it was complete, it is finished. In the same, something of the same way, that is what he is saying here. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it. He will bring you home to himself in glory forever and ever in his presence. That's the promise, that's the motivation the author brings out here so that you, so that I would run this race with endurance. And he continues on with Christ as our example, who for the joy, the end of verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And, And this coupling together of joy and suffering, we see this often in the New Testament, we see this in Hebrews. And it's interesting, this is the only explicit reference of the cross in Hebrews. And what the author reminds us here is there is tremendous suffering. There's agonizing physical suffering for the man Jesus at the cross. And there was far, far even greater emotional and spiritual suffering that the perfect, sinless man, Jesus Christ, experienced at the cross on your behalf and my behalf as he bore the wrath of God there in your place, in my place. But what the author reminds us here is that the cross, in this singular mention of that in his letter, the cross does not end in tragedy. It ends in triumph. That is his point. 
So he endured the cross, the verse continues, despising the shame. The man, Jesus, refused to see the mockery and the shame as the world would see it and the suffering and the agony. He refused to see it as shame. He would not be directed by the world's shame. He gave it no authority. It had no influence in his life and his decision on his pathway to Calvary. And so, he, point here, he endured the agony of the cross for us. So surely you and I can endure the antagonism of the world for him. Verse 2 continues, and... He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the triumph of the cross, where it's not the tragedy. He has sat down at the right hand of God. This is fulfillment. This is fulfillment, even of Psalm 110, verse 1, which was quoted more than once earlier in the letter of Hebrews. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we remember that Jesus is not sitting to rest. He's sitting to rule. He's a sitting ruler and, again, a faithful intercessor is the picture that the author gives us. And then finally in verse 3, he says, For consider him. Examine him minutely from all angles. Have an intense perusal of him, of the author and perfecter of your faith who has endured, verse 3 continues, such hostility by sinners against himself. And then he wraps it up with a final purpose statement. So that, so that you, you yourself, may not grow weary to the point of sickness and may not lose heart, literally that you, you would not faint in your souls. You see, he's writing to a group of Hebrew believers that are suffering oppression, suffering persecution, they're suffering temptation. They're suffering the temptation to neglect so great a salvation, to shrink back, to fall away. And he says, don't do it. Their endurance is faltering. There's a slackening of resolve. But he says, I write this to you. Consider him. Focus on him. Examine Christ. Examine Christ closely. Fix your eyes on Jesus so you may not grow weary and lose heart. And we can even for a moment think of the fact that as we age, our body, may, our physical strength may be waning. But what the author says here is our spiritual strength should be waxing, should be increasing, should be strengthening, even as our physical strength may be waning. We can consider Abraham and Moses, who were examples previously. They had their greatest days of faith after they lived on earth 80 years. And what the author says here, whether you're young or whether you're a little more on the mature side. So I, I looked at a young person. I'm trying not to look to anybody on the more mature side. I'll just look in the mirror. <laughs> Where, wherever we're at, beloved, run the race with endurance. And finally, I'll give a practical word. Now, how, how do we fix our eyes upon Jesus? So we understand that we uh, run the race with endurance by laying aside that which weighs us down and by fixing our eyes on Jesus. But how, practically speaking, do we fix our eyes upon Jesus? 
Immerse yourself in Scripture. Read Scripture. Study Scripture. Memorize Scripture. How could a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Sing the great theology. Take the devotional that Gary provides and meditate through that and prepare your heart for that because those lyrics, even as we are reminded and see every Lord's Day morning, reflect the great theology and the doctrines of grace that we see in Scripture. So we read and study Scripture. We pray. We pray Scripture. We pray theology. We pray even some of the hymns and some of the songs that we sing. We have intercessory prayer on behalf of one another. But we saturate our prayer first and foremost with the glory of God, with praise and thanksgiving. Read Scripture, pray, immerse yourself in biblical fellowship, serve the Lord, give to the Lord, love one another, exhort one another. As Mike reminded us yesterday, when necessary, rebuke one another privately, as Mike said, separate topic there. Beloved, all these things, God has given us his revealed will in Scripture. So when we study, when we dwell, when we let the word of Christ dwell richly in our heart, that's how we fix our eyes upon Jesus. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the salvation that we enjoy individually and the salvation this humble local church, Santan Bible Church, enjoys corporately. Thank you for the joy and blessing that we have to come together as each of us in Christ have had the chains fall off us. So we rise up to serve you. We rise up to run the race. We rise up to fight the holy war. We rise up to love you, to worship you, to love one another, and to love our neighbor and to share the good news of your victory over sin. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and strengthen us for this task. Thank you that even as we are so blessed by whether it's godly mothers in our midst, whether it's Old Testament men and women, whether it's the Apostle Paul, whether it's other believers, we lift our eyes and we do not focus on any man or woman. We focus on you, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is for you and to you that all our efforts, all our praise, all the glory goes. And it's in your name that we pray and that we sing. Amen.